know if you want to hear any from uh, Trump's sister, secretly taped by her niece a while back. 15 hours. This is a heck of a family you got going there. <laughs> Where uh, the niece is tape, secretly taping, you know... Uh, <laughs> Her mom or grandma or grandma, I guess. If it's a niece, no, no, Trump's sister would be her mom or her aunt. Her aunt, yeah, yeah. And uh, so secretly taping family members to try to dig up dirt and oh boy, and um, and some of this tape has emerged. Yeah, and we can talk about that later. But um, I I, only the worst impulses in me want to hear this, but I kind of want to hear. But but so uh, Mark Meadows, who is Trump's chief of staff was on with Stephanopoulos yesterday. And I thought he did a good job of deflecting early on. Uh, Stephanopoulos brought some of it up and uh, Meadows said, you know, I, I've never met his sister. I was hoping to meet her at her brother's funeral, but I, I was there. She didn't attend. I thought, which was a good... Okay. She doesn't go to her brother's funeral. Donald was there. So what's going on in that family? I have no idea. And th- was this judge? I think that... Ha- sister oh, I, or different I don't sister? Think, I know that happens in a lot of really wealthy families. The oh, judge, yeah. yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay. She's a million years old at this point. I don't know. More on that later. I don't want to get off the topic. All right. They All don't right. attend each other's funerals, the brothers and sisters. That's rough. Yeah. yeah. Like I said, I've known a number of really wealthy families that, that go that direction because, man, it really gets into the... Because the niece, you know, that wrote the book, um, she was written out of the will and just... <laughs> it gets It can get really ugly. So poll numbers that are out uh, show uh, Biden with the lead, and we all know that, right? Which polls? All of them. Okay. Okay. He's okay. he's almost exactly the same amount that he was behind Hillary at this time four years ago, which is kind of interesting. Headline in the Wall Street Journal, Trump trails Biden, but polls show the president has some strength. So you get into some of the numbers behind the numbers. Um, The president's share of support now at 41% hasn't topped 44% this year against Mr. Biden. He also trails the former vice president in aggregated polling in most of the battleground states though his deficit is smaller than in the national polls. The president's struggles aren't with one specific group, says this guy who's a publisher of a nonpartisan uh, uh, group that looks at polling. Um, He's struggling in the suburbs, but also underperforming in rural areas. We look at individual congressional districts, and I can't think of one where he's performing as well as he did in 2016. Well, that all sounds like bad news. Yeah. Um, His public image has picked up some shine from four years ago, though, and I find this interesting. More voters saw Mr. Trump in a negative light than a positive one in the most recent poll by a margin of about 12. But at this time four years ago, negative views outnumbered positive ones by 33%. Really? Yeah. Wow. That shocked me. Yeah. Boy, that doesn't fit with the narrative. Trump lags behind his 2016 vote share as recorded by exit polls, but in a sign of improvement, white voters in the most recent Wall Street Journal-NBC poll were divided almost equally between positive and negative views for the president. Four years ago, negative views significantly outweighed positive ones among white voters, 54 to 35. Hmm. So for white voters, it's now 54-35 against, it, uh, or it's now tied. It was 54-35 against four years ago. This, this does run counter to the narrative, and it makes me wonder I, I don't, if I even have any idea what's going on out there. Trump improved his image among whites by about 20 points in the last four years. It, they report in the Wall Street Journal. That's very important because there are more than whites are 70% of the electorate, mm-hmm. which often gets left out of the conversation. Right. All the very growing minority this and minority that, whites still make up 70% of the electorate. 
Uh, holding steady with Hispanics. Um, bueno. He has maintained or even improved his standing, depending on which poll you look at, among Hispanics. So the relentless Trump puts them in cages, Hispanic kids in cages. Trump is an evil racist. He said all immigrants are rapists. Who hates the other brown people, etc., etc. In the last four years, his numbers are flat or slightly up among Hispanics. Wow. Now, how do you explain that mainstream media with your relentless... He's an evil racist, and everybody knows it. I should be delighted that most people appear to be ignoring them. Some, I mean, that, that, oh, that's, it's almost got to be the answer. People some, have just tuned out. Some 31% of the nation's largest ethnic or racial minority groups say they will back the president slightly higher than the 28% who voted for him in 2016. Mm. So among minority groups in general, he's up a couple of ticks over four years. Would you guess that from the coverage in the mainstream media? No, no, not at all. Boy, I'm back to where I was. I can yeah, well, picture. Well, Biden flat out called him a racist last week during right. the D- Democratic convention. Yeah, said it's self evident. Well, the the media, the the big time media, they just say it as matter of factly, as though it's clear. The president who made racist comments about yak or whatever, and then I look at the actual comments and think that's not absolutely not racist, or it's certainly arguably not racist, but. Again, uh, hooray, people are turning, tuning that crap out. Interest in the election has risen among Republicans and now matches the Democrats. I wonder why it was kind of low, because it looked like he was going to cruise to a win, I guess, up until March, maybe. Uh, well, but, and I just think the party of the incumbent isn't as excited. True that. So it's now about 85% for both Republicans and Democrats, which uh, rate themselves as highly interested in the election. Some 27% of voters say they would be optimistic and confident if Trump were elected, compared with 14% who said so in 2016. He's doubled the number of people who are confident that he would be uh, good at being president Hmm. in the four years, which is... This stuff is all just so surprising. I know. This is from the Wall Street Journal, you say? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's the NBC poll. I mean, it's NBC's own numbers. Um... They, they, they weren't that. This is the same poll that came out like on Friday. Of course, these weren't the headline numbers. The headline numbers were how much Trump's behind. Sure, sure. But this is uh, Wall Street Journal NBC. Yeah, I think it's worth remarking on that. The company that runs MSNBC, this is their poll. Up for grabs, voters lean Republican. They looked into voters who haven't ruled out either candidate. I, I, uh, I just I don't know who you are, but I keep hearing about the swing voter, the swing voter. That was Bruce Springsteen, wasn't it? Yeah. Four years ago. You gotta make a decision. I, I don't know. <laughs> I realize not everybody pays attention to the news as much as we do. We're in the business of it, but God, I would think you'd be paying attention enough that you've decided. Anyway. Well, although, and I've talked to some of these people, people who don't like Trump very much. They don't hate the policy, but they don't. They just can't stand them and the rest of it. And we're just waiting for a good, solid Democrat to come along. And 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 they see Biden, old man Biden. Watch me, Mr. President. Watch me. And think, oh man, really? Come on. And they're starting to think, I don't know. Maybe I could take Trump for another four years. So I don't know if it says what percentage of uh, the voting block that is. It can't be very big. But among people who haven't ruled out either candidate, they say both candidates are in play for November. These voters as a group 
suggest they are open to Trump and his party. Some 22% have a positive image of Trump, while only 11% have a positive image of Biden, the poll found. So you have twice as many among the I haven't picked up, I haven't decided yet. Have a positive engine. That's got to be single strong. digits, right? People who haven't decided, like four or five people. It's the not swang. very. It's, I don't think it's very many. <laughs> Wake up! Thank you. Like not single digits percentage. I mean, actual. <laughs> oh, like eight people. Yeah, eight people who are like, eh, I'm still undecided. Yeah, yeah. The swing. There they <laughs> are. The swing voters. I'm you wait, can put them in an elevator. I need to hear more. Pre <laughs> pre COVID anyway. And finally, voters dislike both parties. In 2016, the Democratic Party had a substantially stronger public image than did the Republican Party. While both were viewed in a negative light, negative views of the Democratic Party outweighed positive ones by four. The GOP was underwater by 21. Today, both parties are tarnished tarnished about equally, (laughs) with negative opinion of the Democrats running about eight as opposed to, uh, you know, more 8% more negative than positive compared with 11 for the GOP. So that's within the margin of error of a tie. Sounds about right. Yeah. But so both parties are underwater. Mm. Troubled um, times. Yeah, but that stuff about uh, with the the various minority groups, he's increased his standing among the minority groups since 2016. That is completely the opposite of everything you were told last week during the convention and, and what you're told in uh, most news every single day. Right, right, indeed. Hey, quick follow-up from the Democratic uh, sad Zoom call last week. The DNC tracks social media interactions on the stories they put out. It's a fairly common analytics thing. We actually have people who do that around here. Um, just seeing how many engagements you got, how many shares you got, likes, the rest of it. You're, you've heard of this, right? You've, you've seen the Internet, right? Um, <laughs> you've I, seen I, the Internet, right? I'm trying to decide exactly how to present this. Okay, we'll start at the top. Social media interactions on stories. Michelle Obama, 7.6 million interactions. Okay. Barack Obama is in second place. Now, she was 7.6. He's 1.5. I mean, look at this bar graph. That's quite a drop-off. That's astonishing. Well, and then you got uh, Joe Biden, 1.4. So the actual candidate was 100,000 less than the old guy. Uh, Donald Trump, same number. Then uh, a couple of the speakers people were curious about, Bill Clinton, John Kasich got 468,000, Cindy McCain 434, Bernie Sanders 383, then Kamala Harris stories got 89,000 interactions, 89,000 compared to 7.6 million for Michelle Obama. That's something. Which mystifies me, honestly, the whole cult of Michelle is just another yeah. example to me of the soft-headedness of American politics. She's got the politics. advantage of not like being a politician, though. Well, so. see, that's the thing. She is she is nothing to me. Lovely gal, loves her kids, seems like she has a nice, healthy marriage, very bright woman. I'm not saying she's nothing as a human being. She just has no meaning to me in my life. She's not a politician. She has no power. She, she does have influence. Sure. She is an opinion shaper. I'll absolutely give her that. But it's amazing to me that just as a personality, she has this enormous following. Uh, even though, as far as I can tell, she's still just the wife of the guy who was in the office for a while. Fashion update. Fanny packs are back. We'll get to that story later. Yes. Also, somebody tweeted, since I said true dat a few minutes ago, true dat is cultural appropriation. Worse yet, it's stupid. Hmm. Okay, so I'll stop saying it then. A couple of things I need to get to that I promised that we would is the strategy of the the Marxists 
and the militants in the streets, how smart they are and how they manipulate media opinion, how they manipulate uh, the cops' reactions, and uh, America's most violent women, why young, angry women are such a huge part of these uh, Marxist movements. Uh, All that to come. Stay with us. Benny Smith to inbound. Back to Doncic. Doncic pulls up. Three-pointer. Bang! Bang! It's good! Doncic wins the game at the buzzer! Yeah. Bubble ball. The first really big game moment with a fake crowd. I thought that sounded okay. I mean, you know. Yeah, you had the announcers bellowing and everything. There wasn't the roar of the crowd, but if I was listening, I'd be excited, I think. I want to hire Mike Breen to say, bang, as my coffin is lowered into the grave. Bang! That is one of my favorite sports calls, and in, in, oh, it's great. Wow. This is a great Twitter thread I wanted to bring to you. It's so frustrating to see the brutal militants of the left described as mostly peaceful protesters and Anybody who stands up to them, extreme right-wingers. Um, but the uh, the militants know what they're doing to a large extent. And this is uh, a Twitter thread I came across. I think probably one of you uh, emailed it to us, uh, the link to it. But uh, this guy who's got a, kind of a weird moniker, I'm not sure exactly who he is. I suppose I could check. But want to know how activists in places like Portland take over roads, smash windows, light buildings on fire, and still have the press call them nonviolent? Well, as it turns out, these are well-trained activists using intelligent, highly developed tactics. And uh, a bunch of news clips there. Well, you know what's going on. Uh, For starters, none of this is spontaneous. Note that many protesters have shields. These shields take three hours each, three hours each to make and are created by a group of 25 volunteers working all day. You don't do that spontaneously. It takes planning. Hmm. And then he links to a uh, a thread from a uh, Antifa friendly uh, Twitter account. And um, it's this guy who's happy that two weeks ago, these shields were getting built by three people in a garage. Today, an assembly line of over 25 volunteers and two dogs gathered at Clinton Park in southeast Portland to help put them together. Uh, in total, each shield takes three hours to make, requires passing through multiple groups of people. All materials and time to produce them is donated, and the shields are offered free of charge, uh, etc. They've, they've made hundreds of shields so far. They've built a factory to produce shields. Yeah, exactly. That's something. Yeah. Uh, It isn't just the shields that are planned. Everything is from what protesters wear to the tactics chosen in each situation. The protesters also have a highly developed understanding of the information and media ecosystem and the tactics that work in that environment. The first strategy is to put their target in a decision dilemma. This is where, and this is the key, key term. Um, once you learn to recognize it, you'll understand why they do what they do the way they do it. They select a method of protest that leaves the person with no good options. No matter how the targets react, they look bad. Um, and then it links to uh, a, a lefty uh, website, how to put your target in a decision dilemma. Um, you know what? I don't know how much time we have. Uh, the The brief description of it is... 
Yeah, we'll go with the brief. If you design your action well, you can force your target into a situation where they have to respond but have no good options, where they're damned if they do, damned if they don't. In fact, many actions with concrete goals, such as blockades, sit-ins, tree-ins, etc., require such a decision dilemma in Mm. order to be successful. Consider the blockade of a building. A tactically effective blockade leaves your target with only two options. One, negotiate with you and meet your demands. Or two, react with force, violence against you or arrest. That's a decision dilemma. Sure, because you're peaceful protesters. Right, exactly. Don't let your target walk out the back door, and don't put yourself in a situation where they can wait you out with impunity. You must force a clear decision dilemma. Mm. Without it, you let your target and or the police determine the success of your action rather than calling the shots yourself. Be sure to cover all the exits, literally or figuratively. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, this strategy is paired with the real action is your target's reaction. You want to use someone's reaction to your protests against them, i.e. blocking a road. If the police arrest you, play the martyr. If they don't, you now control the road. And I have a little more elaboration on this and some more strategies. Again, once you learn to recognize them, you realize these are not mostly peaceful protesters just righteously asking for racial harmony. They're pursuing a very very specific militant strategy. We'll also have some COVID updates for you. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Pay off on the important fashion story of the day. Purses are, purses are out. Fanny packs are in, according to the Wall Street Journal. This is for women in specific. More on that later. Also, we'll get to what is the ultimate work-for-home jacket for men. And I actually thought this was important and interesting. I'll tell you about that coming up. All right, then. Uh, this is kind of funny, I thought. This is from the Dispatch. Uh, they did a kind of a this day in history thing. On this day, 206 years ago, British soldiers fighting in the War of 1812 engaged in a mostly peaceful protest by burning the White House to the ground. Yeah. Uh, mostly peaceful protests going on in Portland over the weekend as there were street clashes that looked like the, uh, you know, um, a, a battle out of 1215. Yeah. Between what were called extreme white right wing groups and moderates on the left left-leaning groups was that the washington post who think said it was. That? that's unfriggin believe it really is so we're talking about antifa is a left-leaning group hilarious the actually you know honestly a lot of that political continuum stuff is just silly anyway what they but, are left or right is stupid but the right. idea that they're not extreme right they oh, are very true. clearly extreme so we're talking about <laughs> they're this. both willing to fist fight at a rally that seems extreme yeah. to me yeah so we're talking about the strategies employed by the Marxists these days and how they're absolutely 100% deliberate and organized. And you'd think the media would get this, but they're willfully ignoring it. But we talked about how uh, a dis- you want to put your opponents in a decision dilemma where they have no good options. A, a good uh, example of that might be hurling chunks of concrete at cops. They have two choices because they can't just stand there and get pummeled and injured. They can either retreat, which makes you win the streets and look like heroes, or they can uh, break up the rally, and which brings us to the next point. But so remember the de- decision dilemma. 
dilemma. The strategy is paired with the real action is your target's reaction. You want to use someone's reactions to your protest against them, like blocking a road. If the police arrest you, play the martyr. If they don't, you now control the road. Some highlights from one of their guiding websites here. Um, and they mentioned that uh, uh, during a march in India in 1930, the Indian independence activists famously kept walking unarmed into the brutal blows of British police. Importantly, the press were there. Activists made sure of it. Organizer Saul Alinsky later coined the term political jujitsu to describe actions like this. When applying this principle, it's important to understand that you just you can't just hope the target reacts in a way that spotlights the injustice. Whenever possible, plan for your target's reaction, encourage them, and incorporate them into the action. If it doesn't work the first time, adjust and try again. Uh, a good way to ensure you get a strategically useful reaction from your target is to force them into a decision dilemma, which we just talked about, where all of their available options play to your advantage. Contrary to popular belief, when one of the big boys threatens you... Uh, well, now they're talking about uh, a companies, dealing with the companies. You should celebrate. You're the David to the Goliath. Now you have the upper hand. Take the best quotes, weave them into a press release, and voila, you've cast them into your play. Uh, let's see. Whoops. Oh, man. I went the wrong direction. Sorry. Hang on. Stand by. Okay. So you force them to react in a way that will look good to you. These two strategies are used hand-in-hand to create create actions which activists can turn to their advantage. When they do this correctly, they can create imagery that paints them as the underdogs, even when they are the aggressors. It's social and political jujitsu. Much of this is performative, but not in a look-good-to-your-peers kind of way. The principle is play to the audience that isn't there. Activists try to create actions that look a certain way to the audience on YouTube or watching the news. Again, to their instruction book, when you're pulling off a prank or staging some kind of media spectacle, it's important to keep in mind that those you're directly confronting are often not your main audience. The idea is that's a good that's a good one. Yeah. The idea is to use the immediate audience as unwitting actors in a theater piece that is being performed for a secondary audience. That secondary audience is comprised of film goers or YouTube viewers or TV watchers or press release readers. And they're the ones you care most about. Design your intervention with them in mind. With most strikes or sit-ins, the key audience is the actual target, a CEO or public official, and your aim is to disrupt business as usual and exact a cost that will pressure pressure your target to exceed to your demands. Oh, let's see. And then there's the idea of uh, writing them into your script um, and, and know how. Be care- play, please pay careful attention to this. Activists want to look like they are trying to change the minds of the people they protest against, but that's just for show. They see their targets as unrepentant evildoers that are just props in the drama they are staging. Again, to the instruction book. Sometimes activists think they're out to change the minds of bankers, CEOs, or others they're ostensibly targeting. It's one thing to pretend you're out to change their minds in order to stage a theatrically effective action. That is often necessary, but it's another thing to believe it yourself. The idea that you can change evildoers' minds by gathering en masse outside their stronghold is not exactly supported by the historical record. Instead, think of your target and your immediate audience as unwitting actors in the theater piece you're concocting for another audience they're not even aware of. This next strategy is self-explanatory. Okay, Do- so that, okay. so when you're marching outside a building, whatever, um, uh, take the Occupy Wall Street thing. When they're outside some bank, they're not. They they act like they're trying to change the mind of the bank, mm-hmm. but what they're trying to do is change the the the, the political climate. 
for the whole country right. that puts pressure on the bank to react a certain way. Okay, right. that makes sense. And when they're burning a police precinct, which happened, I think it was Sunday night in Portland, uh, it's not to convince the cops they ought to be nicer to black people. It's to draw a reaction that then is super dramatic and makes them look like um, the victims and not the aggressors. Uh, the next strategy is self-explanatory. Do the media's work for them. This is where activists make sure press releases and film footage that make them look good get into the hands of sympathetic journalists. This explains a lot of what goes on TV. Uh, make the journalist's job as simple as possible. Provide them with what they need. Then they kind of you know restate that. But afterwards, just don't post your stuff on Flickr and YouTube and hope for the best. Instead, have a plan for getting those visuals, visuals out to the media. When Agitpop carried out the public option anti-guerrilla musical, they did a lightning edit of their footage immediately after the action, got it out to key outlets within the day's news cycle. MSNBC, CNN, and Comedy Central all built stories around the footage. Well, that's well, that's just like having a good PR marketing person at your business. Yep, yep. Have you heard about the Wall of Moms in sure, Portland? of course. Got huge pressure. Why they did that and how they did that is so interesting. We'll have that for you right after a quick word from our friends at Simply Safe, which is the best option for protecting your home in these nuts times. Yes, it is less expensive. Yes, it is easier and simpler. It's also better. Well, you can set it up yourself in under an hour. You order uh, the Simply Safe system, comes to your house, and no technician there, no salesperson at your house. You peel and stick the sensors where you need them, and you've got the best overall home security of 2020, according to U.S. News and World Report. It's about $15 a month. You're not locked into a long contract like you are with most of these things, and it's simple enough to use. So many security systems are too complicated, too many menus to scroll through. You don't even use the darn thing. And it's professional monitoring. Keeps watch day and night, ready to send police, fire, medical professionals if there's an emergency. So try it. Risk-free, 60-day risk-free trial with free shipping at simplysafe.com slash Armstrong. Look at the reviews. Simplysafe.com slash Armstrong. So, all right, there's been a lot of sympathetic coverage in media. Much of it revolves around the so-called wall of moms. The media story is that these moms are acting to protect the protesters from vicious police. However, this is just another strategy from the same activist playbook. And that strategy is to lead with sympathetic characters. It's exactly what it sounds like. They put sympathetic people out front to garner sympathy and create the appearance of underdogs fighting an uphill battle against powerful interests. And this is straight from the uh, militant left website. Assemble a compelling cast of characters. It's a critical strategic consideration for any action designer. Action designer. Wait a minute. These are spontaneous, mostly peaceful protests. No, they actually use the term action designer. Successful actions are often those that present strong protagonists and other sympathetic characters. It's important to ensure that the faces of the action are not just representative of the relevant impacted community, but also are easily recognizable to outsiders as the key characters in the story. This can come down to the crude but important dynamics of costuming. A single religious leader wearing religious sacraments will communicate that people of faith are involved in the action better than 20 religious leaders wearing jeans and sweatshirts. And the dynamics of who gets to speak, how the characters are portrayed, and who is cast as the heroes, victims, and villains are deeply entwined in the dynamics of power and privilege. This, it's, I tell you what, it is smart, but it is all so premeditated. You know, I'm gonna we're gonna retweet this, um, and and it's at ArmstrongandGetty.com, and and you need to send it to everybody in the media you know 
But there are a couple more details that are worth knowing. The protesters have a highly developed theory of protest optics. They understand videos can be sliced and diced to tell a certain story, so the story that resonates with most people wins. So they're intentional in trying to create moments on video that can go viral. That isn't to say that they are so also aren't intentional on doing damage. They are. The book Black Block, White Riot, Anti-Globalization, and the Genealogy of Dissent by author A.K. Thompson is the starting place for their theory of what counts as violence and when violence is justified. Um... Here is Alex Hundert writing, uh, defending a diversity of tactics, which is a euphemism for allowing violence at protests. Hundert explicitly states a commitment to nonviolence is dogmatic and stifles debate about which tactics to use. So it goes into some detail about how violence is useful and you ought to use it. So the violence is intentional. Where the wall of moms is meant to win hearts, the black block is there to intimidate. If police react to the violence with arrests, the wall of moms is there so protesters can claim the police attacked moms. You see how the game works? What I want you to get from that, from this, is that none of what you are seeing is happening spontaneously. These are high-level tactics that are given to people supported by a well-organized protest infrastructure. Where do you think all the people making the shields comes from? These radical protesters have organized an infrastructure to, in their words, disrupt, dismantle, and deconstruct your society. I don't want to scare any of you. I just want you to know what's happening because you can't push back against what you don't understand. Wow, that's interesting. Brilliant. It kind of fits in with the whole 2 plus 2 equals 5 movement. Maybe I'll talk more about that later because I'll learn more about that over the weekend, which is really troubling. But I promise this. What's the ultimate WFH wear for men? You know the term WFH now, work from home. Oh, Um, I didn't know that This is actually pretty good, and I might get one of these. The best thing to have if you're a work for home is this new terry cloth navy blazer that has become very important if you're a business person of any kind. Terry cloth? It's made of terry cloth. Like a washcloth. So it's like a robe, but it's shaped like, here's a picture of it, it just looks like a blue blazer. And on a Zoom screen, it looks exactly like... Your dress-up blue blazer that you can throw up over any shirt because it's terry cloth. Huh. It's impossible to wrinkle it or make it look bad or anything. Like yes, that. you can just have that water. It's up. light as a feather. You just lay it on your chair there, and whenever you got the Zoom call, you throw that on over the over whatever shirt you're wearing, and you look like you're dressed up. Nice. That's the hot thing right now. The the terry cloth blue blazer. Wow, what seems is like run? a good idea. I don't know. Yeah. That one's three hundred bucks. But oh, I'm come on. Sure, there are cheaper versions. Yeah. Um, it's got some COVID updates for you, including the latest science on whether or not kids can spread this and what has happened with a couple of schools that have tried in-classroom learning. I'm pro that, but a couple of schools that have opened are having problems already, which is not surprising. There's a great meme going around college uh, campuses right now about the ridiculousness of what's being p- tried. I think you'll find it amusing. Okay, cool. All that's next. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. I think it confirms what other studies have shown, which is that children do shed virus and they can transmit the virus. If they can't transmit the virus, we wouldn't be seeing these outbreaks in day camps in Missouri and Georgia. We saw the situation in Ohio where there was an outbreak um, in a church service and children were in the chain of transmission. So 
Children can transmit the virus. The presumption is that when they're asymptomatic, they're less likely to transmit it. And that's true of adults, too. The CDC says that when adults are asymptomatic, they're also less likely to transmit the infection. Really amazing that we're six months into this now and still trying to figure out can kids transmit it or not, to what extent, et cetera, et cetera. But to what extent is... Uh... Well, go ahead. You've got your, your COVID stuff saved up. Um, well, you said there's something going on about the college of kids getting back to school. Yeah, there are a number of college-related stories. There are a couple of universities that are tracking every step the students take through apps on their phone and hmm. their Wi-Fi systems and the rest of it, which is pretty controversial. And uh, I was talking to my daughter, who's a uh, she's going to graduate at the end of the semester, I guess, whatever this semester is. But um, this is incredibly popular going around uh, college student social media. Step one, invite socially starved 18-year-olds to campus. Step two, let them spread COVID on campus and in dorms. Step three, blame 18-year-olds for poor judgment. Step four, close campus completely after the ad drop deadline and use the freshman as justification. Step five, charge full tuition. Profit. I mean, you have, the kids on, yeah, have the kids on campus, and you're surprised when the vid spreads? Yeah, yeah. I mean, come on. Well, come on. Well, come on. I, I do believe... Come on. I don't know if it's that calculated, but I do think they're, uh, the, the, the number one thing is to... How do we not have a decrease in revenue? I think that is number one. Like, I've got a niece who's... She showed up to her major university. It's her first year uh, of college, which, you know, is generally exciting... But why is she there? <laughs> why is she there at great expense to, uh, you know, the family to be in these super expensive dorms at this super expensive college? She has one class that has 20 students uh, in it, and they'll probably end up canceling that. Like that happened meets with in your person? Daughter. Yeah, that you meets mean? in person. Yeah. So why are you there? Why are you there paying that door, the incredible cost of being in the dorm? Like that says there, getting together and spreading the vid around. Right. What's the point? Yeah. Well, they're yeah. trying to keep the money flowing somehow. Right. Anyway, that's a particular uh, subject. Um, looking at the 14-day rolling average, we're one, down. One more meme. It's a Cartman pointing at four-point plan. One, open campus. Two, collect full tuition. Three, sten- send students home. Four, bro down. The only <laughs> the only thing I like about this is that maybe it destroys the entire university model, which yes. I hate, and is is terrible for America at every level. So if it blows up the whole university thing, finally, keep Good. it going. Um, You're really doing a lot of damage to my, I Photoshop your child's head onto a water polo star <laughs> business I got going on the side here, fellas. <laughs> if we could pump the brakes a little bit on this. Sorry. So the rolling 14-day average, we're down 22% for cases. We're down 5% for deaths. That's good news. Okay. But back to the school situation, they're trying different things, different places. I live in a county where school starts um, kind of this week, really starts next week, and they're waiting for the data to come in on whether or not they can have school. So they're going to start that way within weeks. They might be in the classroom. I don't know. But they've started some places in the country, and there are some cautionary tales Earlier this month, Georgia's Cherokee County School District welcomed back more than 40,000 students. The schools are already quarantining more than 2,000 students then have confirmed more than 120 active cases of COVID Whoops. as of last week. Not surprising. Um, at a different school district, uh, you probably saw the one where there was the viral video of the crowded high school hallway with all the students walking around, shoulder to shoulder, no masks, like hallways always look. Um it's a good way to spread COVID if it is there. A viral video indeed. <laughs> the, 
the school suspended the kid who who shot that video or took right. that picture. Ah, uh, yes. Which then just freed the kid up to do like forty eight hours of a media tour. Yeah. <laughs> That's wow, just that is ridiculous. beautiful in its way, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. N- another great decision by school administrators, which Let's they're see. famous for. We have a problem here. Somebody documented the problem. Therefore, we'll punish the person who documented it. Something they Somebody reported something which is clearly true, but we're going to punish them for it. Yes, That's we can't have that happening. Good lesson for schools in general. No, nobody has gotten around to figuring out pro- the, 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 the main problem that we all wondered. Okay, so you have school start. If a kid tests positive, now what? Well, nobody's come up with a workaround for well, that. Well, it's inevitable. It's absolutely inevitable you're going to get a lot of cases in a school or a college or whatever. Just because the way kids and young adults are. And they're young and healthy, and they will almost, to a person, be fine. Which gets us back to our, our, our new, and this is new in humanity, idea that if anybody gets sick or anybody gets hurt or anybody dies, any cost is justified in preventing that. Even the cost of a hundred times more people dying. Oh, we got to talk about that because Biden said over the weekend, um, I'm going to listen to the scientists. Uh, okay. Well, the question arises, which scientists, pediatricians or uh, epidemiologists? Right. Well, we can talk about that coming up. Right. This is kind of breaking news. First confirmed case of virus reinfection found in Hong Kong. Somebody who had it got over it. Four months later, they get it again, which might comment on how much immunity you get when you get this thing. Okay. Might not like be like a lot of other things. Got to wait and see. I've heard scary headlines before. That'd be troubling if you can get it again four months later, though. Armstrong and Getty.